1: Hey there, once again welcome to the show. This is an informal gathering of wrong thinkers like you and me. We come here, well, in part because we have accepted the notion that we're not sheep, but also to uh, nourish our minds and our souls just a little bit in the face of a world that is just anxious to tell us what to do at every turn. So if uh, if that is what brings you here, even if it's not, you're still welcome here, but uh, I'm I am here to serve up a heap and of uh, Shall we call it uh, Food for Thought? A lot of different varieties, too. Got some great stuff. In fact, I want to make a quick recommendation. On my website, thebrianheidshow.com, you will find a page called Resources for Wrongthinkers," And I have listed there. It. It's a growing list. As I find other news aggregators or different websites or different, um, different individuals who are working hard to spread the message of um, personal liberty, private property, free markets, freedom of conscience, I share these with you so that you too can have access to them. Um, I'm also going to recommend subscribe to the emails that they offer. For instance, I'm going to be sharing a couple of pieces today from everythingvoluntary.com. And if you want to subscribe to the EVC Daily Digest, it's a very simple thing to do. Go to everything-voluntary.com. Sign up for it and you'll get some great, very, uh, very nourishing food for thought every day in your email inbox. It just I mean, you could, you could find this stuff yourself. This saves you a little bit of time. I'm not telling you, and you must believe every word that they say because I've recommended it. I'm just saying you'll find it uh, worth your time. Whether you agree or not, you'll come away with an enlarged perspective. And isn't that really why we want to examine what's going on around us and examine more than just what's handed to us on that three-by-five index card of approved opinion? Approved opinion is to keep you within somebody else's boundaries. You're better than that. I'm better than that. So let's act like it. So if you remember a few days ago, during the uh, nomination or the confirmation hearings for uh, Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett, she was called on the carpet over the use of the term sexual preference. Remember that? And this, th- that's, you know, that somebody would get offended, that somebody would look for offense, that's not so surprising. There is a, a a group of people out there <clears throat> who pride themselves on being perpetually offended. It's how they make their living. No, I'm not kidding. That's that's how they justify their existence. Oh, you said something that makes me mad. I better step in front of these TV cameras and hold forth about how you must be punished. You must be made to renounce all that you've said, blah, blah, blah. It's it's quite a racket, and it works very well for many of them. But what made it really weird was even Merriam-Webster.com. The online dictionary changed the meaning of the word preference and added a little addendum there. And by the way, this is considered offensive by some. (laughs) I guess they're just trying to show how woke they are. Well, there's a great piece from Thomas L. Knapp on why preference is a dirty word to the New Puritans. And he uh, he starts with the quote from Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett where she says, I do want to be clear that I have never discriminated on the basis of sexual preference and would not ever discriminate on the basis of sexual preference. Now, Thomas Knapp says that's a laudable stand, one might think, but some don't. Self-designated representatives of the LGBTQ community immediately escorted Barrett to the pillory, I did not choose to be gay, thundered USA Today columnist Stephen Petro. Ditto for the millions of LGBT people in this country who find sexual preference highly charged and were shocked by Barrett's use of the term. Now Barrett quickly apologized, saying, I certainly didn't mean and would never mean to use a term that would cause any offense to the LGBTQ community. And this is where Thomas L. Knapp says, as a member of that community, he wishes she hadn't apologized. Not just because preference is logically a subsidiary trait to orientation, although he says that's true. If we are, as many believe, biologically hardwired to prefer romantic and sexual relationships of certain types, well, of course we prefer such relationships to others. Nor only because some LGBTQ persons believe that their romantic sexual preferences are shaped by environment as well as heredity. By the way, he says he's agnostic on the subject, although he says that's true as well. Barrett should not have apologized because the position implied by her use of the word preference is the only position compatible with the rights and freedoms most of us would want her to defend and preserve from a bench on the Supreme Court. He says attempts to erase the idea of preference from discussions of sexual orientation and gender identity are attempts to deny and suppress the free will, choice, and agency of the very people who constitute the LGBTQ community. He says neither he nor his many friends in that community deserve to be treated as helpless slaves to a biological equivalent of the old religious doctrine of predestination the elect to our supporters the defective to those who loathe us who loathe us rather powerless pawns whose thoughts and actions affect nothing And I like the question he asks here he says what would the point of lgbt pride be to a herd of mindless robots marching blindly down the Pride Day parade route in accordance with programs we own no authorship of. What rights could such machines claim to possess? Without free will, what actions of theirs could be judged? He says, the new Puritans of progressivism want us to think of ourselves as such robots. That would make us easier to order around for political gain. Real people with rights... Reasons and preferences, people who choose our relationships and craft our own personalities of whatever type and of whatever grounds we deem important, frighten, enrage, and confuse them. And he says, I hope Amy Coney Barrett doesn't see us the way they do. I thought that was a pretty powerful commentary for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's speaking as a member of the LGBTQ community. I think that gives him some standing or at least some stature there that uh, maybe the rest of us wouldn't have. But I also like that he's focusing on rights as in what everyone possesses, not just members of this group or members of that group. This is the problem I have with identity politics. And, and, and bear with me for a moment because I'm going I'm to go off on a little bit of a rant here the battle that you see shaping up before us that has, that's taking place all around us right now is not left versus right. It is not Democrat versus Republican. It is the collective, usually in the form of the state, versus the individual. And so when I see people advocating for things like um, identity politics or group identity, I wonder if they realize that they're engaging in a form of collectivism. In fact, I wonder if it would shock them and maybe even upset them a little bit to realize they're taking the very same approach that real, bona fide racists take. You know, the ones who judge everybody based on what group they believe they fit into. Well, if you're not a member of this group, then you shouldn't be treated as well as members of of this other group. And if you're of this group, well, you're really lower than the low. That's just a really ugly form of collectivism because it it appeals to the collective and places people in the collective sense rather than looking at them as individuals. And I'm not saying we need to be really eager to judge everybody, you know, and, you know, find a pigeonhole that we can fit everybody into. But if you have to categorize people, I think Charlie Reese said it best many years ago, and that is the only two categorizations that really matter are whether someone is decent or indecent. And by the way, that refers to their behavior, not necessarily their, their mind or their spirit or, or their heart. Personally, I think it's best to just look at people on an individual basis. Use your powers of observation if there's a judgment to be made. But don't resort to labels. Don't resort to, to the collectivist idea that, well, because his skin is this color, it must mean that he thinks this way or he belongs with this group. I know far too many people who just blow these stereotypes right out of the water. And I think Thomas L. Knapp, in his commentary, pretty much does the same thing here. They're not robots. They're not just some part of this collective. They're individuals with rights, reasons, and preferences. And it's government's job to protect those rights, to secure those rights, and make sure that they're not infringed. As for the rest of us, it's our job to respect their rights in the same way that we would want our rights to be respected. Huh. Something something golden rule comes to mind. All right. I'm going to step off the soapbox. Anyway, I thought it was a terrific little commentary there from Thomas L. Knapp. I would encourage you check it out at everythingvoluntary.com everything-voluntary.com sign up for their EVC Daily Digest and enjoy some really neat treats. Landing in your email inbox on a daily basis.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining me today here on The Brian Hyde Show. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, can I suggest, it's a pretty simple thing to do. All I would ask is that you uh, jump on over to the thebrianhydeshow.com. You can actually just follow my show notes. I post them on social media. I send them out on Twitter and I send them out to, uh, you know, on Facebook and so forth. But if you go to the Brian you will find them very simply and you can put them to good use by uh, subscribing to the podcast. By the way, if you're so inclined, if it, if it moves you, if you feel like, Hey, this is, this is good stuff. You like what, uh, what I'm supplying consider becoming a patron. Many different options. You could donate as little as a dollar a month, five dollars a month, ten dollars a month. I appreciate every last bit of it, and I use those funds as if they were sacred funds for the purpose of keeping the message of liberty moving forward. It's an exciting time, and it's also a little bit of a scary time. But uh, I could not be happier to be doing what I'm doing, and and if I could just be so bold as to say, I really I feel a sense of of calling. This is, this is what I need to do. My time, my talents, my efforts, I think are best spent helping to share this message and helping to uh, encourage other people to recognize the influence that they have and to see beyond the limited opinions we're supposed to hold. All right, that said, it's scary to speak out. Now, I've grown pretty thick skin over the years, and I, I've actually reached the point where I, I never thought I would see this. But I, I don't mind opposition when somebody comes after me. When someone, you know, I've, and I've had some pretty nasty stuff written about me. It's been a while since the really harsh, harsh stuff has been out. But uh, when opposition comes up, there was a time when at first it was like, oh, that hurts. Oh, that is so that that is just no fun at all. And and I'll admit it does it it stings at first, but then you come to recognize. These critics who follow you from place to place and criticize everything you do and everything you say they are they consider you an authority it's a compliment and what's more they are willing to read everything you write they're willing to hear whatever you have to say just so they can criticize it you got to appreciate that on some level right i mean for crying out loud they're they're doing you a favor, and they'll tell you things your best friends probably won't tell you. So it's, it's a mixed blessing. Yes, there's a bit of a sting when someone comes at you with, with a snide comment or you know starts taking you apart and taking your arguments apart, but they're actually doing you a favor. And when you start seeing opposition as that, it's, uh, it's something that you actually will welcome. And the harsher that opposition, sometimes the better you're doing. Now, having said that, there are a lot of people who are risk-averse because they they stand to lose a lot. If you're familiar with the term doxing, some people have lost their jobs simply for expressing an opinion. I don't even mean something, you know, like uh, offensive. It's not like they shared a really inappropriate joke or they, you know, uttered some kind of slur. I'm thinking, for instance, of the school coach dismissed from his job simply because he, I think he posted a, a, a Trump Picture or indicated he supported Trump. Yeah, it's come to that. In fact, uh, who was it? The cyclist. Wasn't there an American cyclist who was suspended from the uh, bicycle team because someone said, well, you sound like a Trumpster or a Trump supporter? And his response was, yeah. That was enough. Well, that's offensive, and we're looking into this. We're suspending this individual. We cannot have that kind of, you know, that, that sort of thing on our, our team. I mean, people are being identified as Trump supporters by their bumper stickers, their cars keyed or damaged, flags they fly, signs they put up, um, vandalism being done, threats being made. We know where you live, and when this election's over, you are going to pay. That's pretty scary stuff. But I'll tell you what really is spooky is when journalists cross that line to where they're not trying to win an argument. They're trying to destroy your life. I want you to listen to this clip from Tucker Carlson. He's interviewing Darren Beatty about an NBC News reporter who is funded by U.S. tax dollars and and, who authored a doxing manual funded by U.S. tax dollars. And she absolutely exults in destroying people's lives. Listen to this.
2: With NBC News, what does she do exactly? Well, by her description, her job is seeking out personally identifying information about anonymous Trump supporters online, some of them and revealing their true identities. So Dryden has acknowledged, quote, this, I use social media sleuthing to learn about a sus- subject's real life, their family, friends, jobs, personal and political associations. So what does that mean exactly? What kind of information? Well, that information could include phone records, property records, even their Amazon wish lists. What is this about exactly? Darren Beatty is one of the people who broke this story. He's with Revolver News. Darren, thanks so, so much for joining us. So, be- before you get into the larger meaning of this, tell us specifically what this—what
3: is she doing? What does this mean? Oh, she's up to no good. As you mentioned, she uses state-of-the-art proprietary technical tools to dig up personal information about anonymous Trump supporters online. As you mentioned, that includes property records, phone records even Amazon witchlist you name it. She'll do everything she can to unearth anonymous Trump supporters, basically so she can ruin their lives.
2: Uh, why would NBC News be doing something like this? I mean, you think NBC's job would be to tell us the news. What do the policies mean? Why would they be going after anonymous
3: Twitter users? It's a great question. It really is disgusting. It's disgraceful even by modern journalist standards. I'd love for NBC to comment on this. We see these journalists are not even acting as meaningful journalists. What they're doing is acting as commissars, a neo-Stasi, effectively, in order to crush the rebellion of the American people against their corrupt ruling class associated with the victory of Donald Trump. There's one aspect of this story that's maybe even more disturbing than what you described, and that is that Brandy Zadrozny uses this term disinformation as the pretext to go after Trump supporters and destroy their lives. I think as many viewers have seen, disinformation is this new buzzword, this new pretext used to silence Trump supporters. What's especially dangerous about this is that it brings this forced to bear in a national security context. Disinformation is a national security term. It invites the force of our own national security apparatus to silence Trump supporters domestically. And it's part of this trend that we're seeing a broader swath of our own national security apparatus being repurposed and redeployed domestically to silence, suppress and destroy the energies associated with Donald Trump's victory in 2016. For a
2: news organization to work in concert with the federal agencies to suppress dissent domestically, I mean, thats I I never imagined that would happen, but that is happening.
3: Right. The full story of this, I would need hours to explain, but just a little detail. So she wrote For her fellow journalists, a a manual, a doxing manual detailing her methods for fellow journalists who failed the same ethics class. One of the sponsors of her doxing manual on how to ruin Trump supporters' lives by uncovering their personal information is Bellingcat, an organization funded by NED and our own government. Taxpayers are funding this. It's unbelievable.
2: Noah Oppenheim. At NBC News, one of the people who should answer, the guy who apparently leaked the access Hollywood tape to the Washington Post in 2016. They never have to answer the question. Absolutely. Dar- Darren Beatty, great to see you tonight. Congrats on the story. Great
1: to be here. Thank you. Pretty chilling stuff, wouldn't you say? I mean, look, I, I know, all's fair in politics, so you know, maybe you expect some dirty tricks, but you know, I've, I've said this many times, I still believe it is not getting any easier to speak the truth. In fact, I think from this point on, it's probably gonna be tougher and tougher to do. Having said that, I believe we have an absolute duty to speak the truth, even when it's scary, even when it could cost us. And so I remain committed. I'm gonna do my best to help everybody around me build platforms from which they can speak the truth, even if their voice is shaking.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I don't know if you have run headlong into cultural Marxism. Let me say it by another name, and you'll go, "Oh yeah, yes, I have political correctness, right? You've heard about this. We've all encountered this before. I've, uh, I've, I've had the privilege, and yes, it was a privilege to work with uh, with at least one coworker who is po- was possibly the most politically correct person I've ever met in my life." I mean, there was no opinion. There was nothing you could say that she wasn't willing to step up and correct. Don't you think that's insensitive? Don't you think that you should say it this way? Don't you think that you're being, you know, uh, exclusive? And, and mind you, this wasn't because we were all standing there going off on racist rants. It's just, you know, you'd say something as a matter of opinion. And she was right there to correct you because there's a politically correct way to say things and to think. And that's really what it's about. Now, if you've heard the terms cultural Marxism or critical theory or Frankfurt School, you know this is the ideology that drives so much of the uh, intolerant violence (laughs) that's taking place on our streets today. Um, I'm sorry, Antifa, that is the polar end of where you arrive, where uh, where you fight fascism by going out and acting like a fascist and committing violence on any person who does not line up with your beliefs. There's an excellent article that I'm going to post in the show notes. It's a pretty lengthy one. Um, stuff that Brian Miller writes for Ammo.com. It's very well researched, and so he he goes into a lot of detail. But if you want to truly understand cultural Marxism, <clears throat> particularly uh, political correctness, You've got to learn how the disciples of an obscure Italian linguist subverted America. And I hope you can find some time, maybe in this coming weekend, you'll have a little bit of downtime and you can sit down and spend an hour or two examining this this article. Because if if you think you know what critical theory means or you think you know what cultural Marxism means... He says, if you have an intuitive approximation of what these terms mean, there's also a good chance you don't know much about the deep theory, where that ideology comes from and more especially what it has planned for America and the world. So I'm going to hit a couple high points here. I'm not going to touch on the whole article. But you need to know that the underlying theory here is a variant of Marxism taken out of the economic and, and political realm and translated into culture. You've heard me talk about how we're facing kind of a culture war at this time, which in many ways is more dangerous than a political war. I mean, if you want to think about some of the, the worst things that have been done to other human beings, I'm thinking of China's great cultural revolution. Tens of millions of people murdered by their government and by their fellow citizens because they were remaking the culture, the French Revolution. That was a cultural revolution. Scary stuff. But this idea that uh, cultural Marxism has come about is that it's a variant of Marxism pioneered by an early 20th century Italian Marxist politician and linguist by the name of Antonio Gramsci. Gramscian Marxism is a radical departure from classical Marxism, Brian Miller says. You don't have to endorse the classical Marxism of Marx and Engels and others to appreciate the significant differences between the two. He's easily, Gramsci is easily one of the most influential thinkers you've never heard of. Whereas classical Marxism located what has been called the revolutionary subject, meaning the people who will overthrow capitalism and usher in socialism within the broad working class, primarily in what's now the first world, Gramsciism takes a very different approach. This approach underpins a lot of the social unrest gripping America and the West today. In fact, Brian Miller says, in a sense, we're living through the endgame of a Gramscian revolution. Now, there are two very important diversions that Gramsciism has from traditional Marxist thought. First was that economics was the base of culture and politics. Secondly, philosophical materialism in the Marxist sense, where reality is effectively formed by the means of economic production. Here's what he means by this. For Gramsci, culture was more important than either economics or politics. This is what was needed to be changed for there to be a revolution. As such, the weapon to be used for such revolution was not the economic might of an organized working class, but a long march through the institutions, a phrase actually coined by German Marxist Marxist Rudi Dutschke, whereby every institution in the West would be subverted through penetration and, and infiltration. Now, let me just give you a quick aside here for a moment. How many times have you heard me talk about the various institutions in society that coexist alongside government? Let's go through them real quick. Family is one of those institutions. Church is another one. Business, media, academia, and community. Government or state being the seventh institution. Now, there may be other sub-institutions, but these are the major ones. And what you need to understand is that in a healthy society, all of these institutions coexist and work alongside each other, each exerting influence in their own way. Government is the only institution that claims a monopoly on the use of force to make people do what it wants them to do. All those other institutions have to persuade which means it's in your interest for those other institutions to be very active. When community is, is working and its influence is being felt, great things happen, but they happen through persuasion. Same with family, church, media, business, academia. You get the picture. But when one or more of these institutions takes over, and of course in our situation, uh, we already know Government has been kind of selected or we've been trained to see it as the primary problem solver for everything going on in our lives. But that's not where cultural Marxism has found its greatest, uh, you know, toehold. Yes, you know, government agencies, those who've worked in government, you understand. You have to be politically correct. Sensitivity training is mandated but look at how it has spread to the business community. That's cultural Marxism. Look at academia. This is probably its, its strongest stronghold in terms of the, the culture war. Family is being targeted. Religion. <laughs> Do you suppose there's any antipathy towards religion from cultural Marxism? You bet your bippy there is. Even communities are feeling this as well. So I'm going to leave this article for you from uh, from Brian uh, Miller. He covers things like the origins of cultural marxism starting with Gramsci's children, the Frankfurt School. And he goes through the different names and the different theories that uh, that uh, came out of this repressive tolerance, critical theory, the long march through the institutions, the weaponization of critique. I am going to touch on something he points out here at the very end and that's asking the question is cultural Marxism a real threat? And that's a question that needs to be asked by more people. It certainly has made some inroads. I think one of the examples he uses that that really illustrates the nature of the threat here is uh, the presence of cultural Marxism in elementary education, a very clear example of the long march through the institutions largely being successful. The indoctrination of college students produced generations of college students who went on to share those ideas with younger and younger children. Nowhere more than in public education has the long march through the institutions been more successful. And by the way, one of the most disturbing examples of this is sexual education for very young children. That's a very lurid example of cultural Marxism. Brian Miller says, indeed, teaching children about sex has been a significant issue for doctrinaire cultural Marxists. But as disturbing as this drive is, he says it's just part of a broader trend of trying to indoctrinate children in the fundamentals of cultural Marxism and its methodology of critiquing, which means tearing down Western civilization. Things like uh, smearing all whites as racist, attacks on the nuclear family, heterosexuality and biological sex are socially constructed for the purpose of social control and suppression, I mean, it sounds like a caricature, but there are people out there who are quite uh, seriously pushing this at the collegiate level and even on down into uh, primary schools. The education system, says Brian Miller, is where the rubber meets the road in terms of cultural Marxism moving from some esoteric academic ideology into something that influences the broader culture. But most importantly... You've got to combat it by studying social history and the history of ideas. Once you understand the origins, it becomes a lot easier to recognize this for what it is, and it becomes a lot easier to reject political guilt. Anytime someone is trying to make you feel guilty so that they can assume control over you, they're in the wrong. That's that's an evil thing to do. You and I are under no obligation whatsoever to play along just because, well, you know... They belong to uh, one of these victim groups, which, by the way, that's part of the uh, Marxism aspect. Now, you got to stand up for your rights. doesn't mean you have to be mean about it, but you've got to be firm, and you cannot allow yourself to be bold into giving them up. Check the show notes for the article from Brian Miller, Cultural Marxism's Origins.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is
1: The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I want to spend a little bit of time touching on uh, coronavirus. I almost feel bad because it seems like, well, every day there's something to say, but every day as I'm doing my show prep and I'm looking around for really worthwhile commentaries and ideas to share with you. I find so much good stuff. And this one kind of blew my mind. Uh, This is an article from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the uh, American Institute for Economic Research. The World Health Organization in 2011 warned against a culture of fear. This is really good stuff because somebody saw this coming. Jeff Tucker says a fine feature of the decentralized network of anti lockdown Twitter is that it turns up fantastic bits of research that would otherwise go unnoticed. In this case, he says Colvinder Kaur, MD, president of the Concerned Ontario Doctors, discovered an extraordinarily truth telling bulletin from the World Health Organization released back in July of 2011. Its prescience is incredibly obvious. It appeared in times when we might call the lockdown industry was gaining what we might call the lockdown industry was gaining steam. This movement was born in the early 2000s with computer scientists who imagined that their agent-based models should replace medical advisories in the event of a pandemic. The Bush administration acquiesced to their ideas in 2006, despite the protests from responsible public health experts. After that, they organized conferences, published in journals, and generally closed ranks around a fantastic vision of Central Plan, all well-funded through public money and private philanthropy from the Gates Foundation. Bill Gates, knowing next to nothing about viruses or public health concerns, has been a lockdowner for many years. And all these years later, they finally got a chance to implement a dangerous social experiment in lockdowns. But Jeffrey Tucker says in 2011, the World Health Organization saw what was developing and issued a powerful warning authored by Luc Bonnet, Netherlands Interdisciplinary Demographic Institute and Wynne Van Dam, Institute of Tropical Medicine. It was a strong attack against what they called the culture of fear that could be fomented in the future, just as it was in 2006 and 2009. It said plainly that the next pandemic should be treated as we have in the 20th century past, with calm, not panic, and with a broad-minded focus on public health in a holistic sense. Tucker goes on to say, moreover, the memo warned of what we might call the public choice elements of the urge to lock down. Flu specialists sound unwarranted alarms in order to attract media attention and funding vaccine makers and marketers looking for government subsidies, and other interest groups that might irresponsibly use a future pathogen. He says, in times when governments around the world are fomenting fear, turning citizens against each other, stigmatizing those with disease, and teaching people to to, uh, regard dignified human persons as nothing more than disease vectors, he says, this element of wisdom is a ray of light. Now, here's a quote from the memo. The repeated pandemic health scares caused by avian and a new a, a new uh, human influenza, one in 2006, one in 2009, are part of the culture of fear. Worst-case thinking replaced balanced risk assessment. Worst-case thinking is motivated by the belief that the danger we face is so overwhelmingly catastrophic that we must act immediately. Rather than wait for information, we need a preemptive strike. But if resources buy lives... Wasting resources wastes lives. The precautionary stocking of largely useless antivirals and the irrational vaccination policies against an unusually benign H1N1 virus wasted many billions of euros and eroded the trust of the public and health officials. The pandemic policy was never informed by evidence, but by fear of worst-case scenarios. End quote. Now, Jeff Tucker says the World Health Organization issued this blast due to the manufactured media and political panic that occurred in both 2006 and 2009. The headlines blared about the coming danger statesmen the world over gave press conferences alongside various public health alarmists. The mainstream media used for the occasions to get clicks and freak out. And he says he recalls both well because it was also strange to see public officials attempting to get their populations in a state of absolute freakout despite any evidence. They got into the habit of imagining the worst possible outcomes and broadcasting those out to people. Now, he reminds us in both 2006, the flu never really left the bird population, and 2009, which turned out to be no worse than seasonal, the public paid very little attention to the histrionics taking place in the public sector. What alarmed the World Health Organization in those days was how health officials, public health officials, had taken a dangerous turn away from calming the public into sowing panic again an excerpt from the memo quote in both pandemics of fear the exaggerated claims of a severe public health threat stemmed primarily from disease advocacy by influenza experts in the highly competitive market of health governance the struggle for attention budgets and grants is fierce the pharmaceutical industry and the media only reacted to this welcome boon we therefore need fewer and not more pandemic preparedness plans or definitions Vertical influenza planning in the face of speculative catastrophes is a recipe for repeated waste of resources and health scares induced by influenza experts with vested interests in exaggeration. It says there is no reason for expecting any upcoming pandemic to be worse than the mild ones of 1957 or 1968. No reason for striking preemptively. No reason for believing that a proportional and balanced response. Would risk lives. End quote. Now, Jeff Tucker says if I'm reading this correctly, the World Health Organization seems to be warning of the rise of a whole industry of public officials, media, and pharmaceuticals that's heavily invested in creating panic whenever the next pathogen arrives, wildly exaggerating the threat in their own industrial interests. That's a strong charge, but he says it seems to have been backed up by the unfolding events of 2020. By the way, the memo continues with an offering of an alternative to the culture of fear. Officials should instead look to the evidence and manage the pandemic with a clear-headed rationality. Quote, the opposite of preemptive strikes against worst-case scenarios are adaptive strategies that respond to emerging diseases of any nature based on the evidence of observed virulence and the effectiveness of control measures. This requires more generic capacity for disease surveillance, problem identification, risk assessment, risk communication, and health care response. Such strength in general capacity can respond to all health emergencies, not just influenza. Resources are scarce and need to be allocated to many competing priorities. Scientific research on a resource allocation is best, scientific advice rather, on a resource allocation is best handled by generalists with a comprehensive view on on health. Disease experts wish to capture public attention and sway resource allocation decisions in favor of the disease of their interest. And he says, finally, we get to this beautiful closing riposte. The key to responsible policymaking is not bureaucracy, but accountability and independence from interest groups. Decisions must be based on adaptive responses to emerging problems, not on definitions. World Health Organization should learn to be nice, Accountable for reasonableness in the process of openness, transparency, and dialogue with all the stakeholders, and particularly the public." Now, Jeff Tucker says what we see in this remarkable memo is identical to the ethos and import of the Great Barrington Declaration, which since its release has been treated like some kind of radical, controversial statement. Actually, he says, the World Health Organization said the same thing in 2011, with much tougher language and more biting analytics essentially warning that the world is being trolled by special interest groups with a vested stake in panic over rational public health measures. What was true in 2011 is true today. In fact, he says, more so than ever. Okay, so I have to ask, does that surprise you? Does it surprise you that someone would take advantage of panic? I mean, the words, never let a crisis go to waste, come to mind. And I think that's what we've seen play out over the last few months. It's maddening. But it's wonderful to see things that that seem to validate this understanding that this is not about health. It's about control. By the way, I'm also linking an article. This is an essay from Richard M. Ebling. Um, As scary as the worldwide pandemic has been, he does a marvelous job of explaining how the real damage has been done by government policies. Every time you hear someone complaining, we need to lock it down harder, you know, or the damage is going to be even worse, just remember, whatever damage you're seeing, whether it's in terms of, you know, coronavirus deaths, or whether it's in terms of, you know, failed lives and businesses, suicide rates, despair, alcoholism, drug abuse, etc., government policies are primarily responsible for much of that damage. And Richard Ebling explains how the official need for control has actually prevented the market from providing far more efficient and far less damaging solutions. It's linked in the show notes. You can find them at the show.com for October 22nd. Check it out. I think you'll find it well worth your while. This is The Brian Hyde Show.